Dear Fresh Ed listener, this is Mari Cazalat. I was a Fresh Ed Flux fellow this past year, and I'm currently producing Eduque, a Portuguese version of Fresh Ed. I love working at Fresh Ed because of the space this podcast promotes for diverse voices to be heard and for people to have access to knowledge. As you know, Fresh Ed is a paywall-free podcast that relies on your donations and support to keep running. To enable me to keep working with Fresh Ed in other languages, please consider donating by clicking on the Donate button on our website. Thank you for our continued support. This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Earlier this year, UNESCO held a high-level segment of its global education meeting aimed at galvanizing political commitments towards mobilizing investment in education. The goal was to encourage countries to develop strong domestic systems to fund education. Education has been impacted directly because we have seen a closure of uh, all education systems all over the world. 1.6 billion learners have been affected and it's important that uh, uh, we give attention to what will uh, this take to get us back to normal or to get us back better. Is uh, uh, education financing impacted by the crisis? We have a rather nuanced perspective. We have evidence that education financing is being impacted in a mechanical way in the sense that public expenditures are shrinking and education budget, which is in, in most economies the largest, is being impacted. My guest today is Boren Chakran, Director for Policies and Lifelong Learning Systems at UNESCO. He has been working with UNESCO to spearhead the effort to bring conversations about financing education to the highest levels of the international community. Boren Chakran, welcome to Fresh Ed. Hello. Uh, Thank you, Will. So can you tell me a little bit about how COVID has impacted the financing of education worldwide? I think, uh, first of all, uh, we need to uh, to say that we are facing a major crisis that is impacting every part of the education system as it is impacting economies, lives and, and health of, of people. But uh, education has been impacted uh, directly because it, we have seen a closure of uh, all education systems all over the world. 1.6 billion learners have been affected and it's important that uh, we give attention to what will uh, this take to get us back to normal or to get us back better? Is uh, uh, education financing impacted by the crisis? We have a rather a nuanced perspective. We have evidence that education financing is being impacted in a mechanical way, in the sense that public expenditures are shrinking and education budget, which is in, in most economies the largest, is being impacted. At the same time, we have seen countries allocating resources to education through the stimulus packages. But this is not the situation everywhere. In most cases, these are high-income countries, middle-income, but for low and uh, lowest-income countries, we know that the stimulus packages are rather thin or they don't exist. And that means that education financing is being impacted And we have to look very closely on what does that mean in terms of the quality of education, in terms of equity of education, and in terms of the status of teachers who in some of the education system are the largest part of the budgets. Right. Okay. So teachers take up a huge amount of recurrent expenditures pretty much in all systems. The COVID pandemic has impacted education in middle and high income countries. They might have seen some stimulus money going into education as in other sectors as well went with these stimulus packages. And then in low income countries, we don't see those same stimulus packages and we see a general 
decline in education financing. Before we move on, I mean, with the stimulus packages, you know, are states nation states investing a lot of the stimulus money into education or, or like what percentage of stimulus money is going to education? We have been watching very closely the stimulus packages and how much resources are allocated to education in this context. The data we have shows that 3% of the resources allocated to the stimulus packages are allocated to education. Of course, this is the reality at the average, but then the, we can have differences across countries and when it comes to middle and low income countries, uh, these are the average is less than 1%. When wow. you compare this to the, the importance of the education budget in the public expenditure, you see that it's, uh, it's rather uh, a thin part of the resources that are allocated to education. It's quite surprising in a way. I, I had no idea. And in terms of sort of in general education budgets before COVID, did we see a similar decline in sort of public expenditures, which would, you know, naturally impact education? Or was it sort of a, a different trend that we noticed? No, it was a rather different trend. Uh, let me recall that in 2015, globally, we have adopted uh, benchmarks that uh, all member states are expected to align to having uh, four to six percent of the GDP allocated to education or uh, 15 to 20% of the public expenditures allocated to education. And uh, the objective was also that member states will meet the two benchmarks. We have seen that uh, uh, some countries, particularly low-income countries, have been investing more in education and, and trying to reach the benchmarks, but we were still far from having member states meeting those benchmarks. And when we look at the data, we found that uh, around 47% uh, of the countries are not meeting the benchmark uh, related to the GDP and others uh, are not meeting the public expenditure uh, benchmark. Wow, so 47% of countries not meeting this GDP benchmark. That seems quite high and, and a bit worrisome. So, you know, in a way, what impact has this sort of underinvestment in education had, on, particularly in low- and middle-income countries? I mean, the impact is, is very clear is that we are lagging behind in, in achieving the SDG4 in different targets. And it's a reality. The last report shows that we are not meeting the different targets. And obviously, it has impact on the quality of the education itself. And again, we have evidence that many students are uh, not reaching the proficiency level that they are expected to reach in terms of reading or numeracy, and we have a, a high dropout rate when it comes to secondary education, for example. So basically, the uh, lack of uh, resources translate into lack of uh, quality, lack of uh, equity of the uh, education system, and it translates into not meeting the SDG4 goals. Okay, so, you know, before COVID, there was in a sense, underinvestment in many countries in education. And then during COVID, it sort of made these this underinvestment potentially even worse. And in many ways, I mean, do countries now need to like invest even more money to sort of overcome some of the shocks that COVID enacted or brought into a lot of education systems? Well, there are a few points I think that are important here. One is when in uh, some of the economies, 97% or sometimes 90% of the budget is allocated to teachers. Obviously, most uh, countries have been trying to protect the teachers' uh, salaries. That means that the tiny part that was allocated to investment in pedagogical resources, in uh, infrastructure, is missing. So that's the first point that we have to consider, is that while probably the resources allocated to teacher salaries are maintained, all what would have uh, contributed 
contributed to improving and to scaling the access or quality or uh, equity would not be there. The second aspect that is important is that the investment that are being done now on education will determine the quality and the future of the societies, the futures of economies. So if we are investing less today, that will be will impacting uh, the future. And the last piece I think is very important to consider that it's not particularly for low-income countries. It's not only the domestic resources that are shrinking. Potentially the development aid is also shrinking and that will mean less resources allocated to education in those part of the economies and, and part of the world. So given that sort of situation that you're describing, how can more funding be mobilized, right? I mean, in what way can nation states, particularly low and middle income countries, begin to mobilize additional funding to, you know, in a sense, properly finance education systems. And when I say properly, it's related to sort of the commitments in SDG 4 with this. Uh, it's a, what 20% recurrent expenditures on education or 4 to 6% of GDP spent on education. How might nation states go about properly funding their education systems? I think here we have to think short term and to long term. In the short term, obviously, uh, the countries have to leverage those investments that are going, for example, in stimulus packages, even if they are not large. But it's about allocating resources in the stimulus packages and using them efficiently and equitably. That's in the short run. In the long term, obviously, we are expecting member states to meet the benchmark or to go beyond the benchmark. And there is no, uh, how called, uh, uh, silver bullet here. And there is no miracles. The question is how much resources are locating particularly from domestic funding. And the solution is about reforming the fiscal system and ensuring that there is more revenues for the public expenditure, which can then translate in more resources for education as part of the trade-offs in the government decision. And this is an important aspect, really, is that it's a whole-of-government approach. It's not only ministries of education. Ministers of education and ministers have to engage with minister of finance, have to engage with minister of economy. And at the end of the day, it goes to head of governments to make the right trade-offs. And uh, our call and our voice is very bold on this. We need to have more resources for public expenditure, and we have to have more resources allocated to education in that, in that broader perspective. So in a, in a way, it would be something like uh, the government spends a certain amount of money, and perhaps the government might be able to reallocate some money it spends on the military to fund education, right? There might be, a, instead of you know increasing the total pie of government expenditures, they actually could reallocate in some way to have a different distribution that emphasizes education on the one hand. On the other hand, they still might be able to grow the pie of the total expenditures through things like taxation, perhaps. Absolutely. I think the question is, uh, first of all, are you able to grow the pie? And that's about fair uh, fiscal system. That's about looking at the fiscality. But then the second is, are you making the right trade-offs? And are you allocating to education rather than to military or to other uh, sometimes resources or expenditure that are not the ones that we are driving for. Uh, of course, it's about education, it's about health, it's about equitable financing of education itself within the education system. Where are the resources going and are we 
targeting the right target groups in terms of the ones that are disadvantaged, the ones that are not benefiting from the investment in education. How can states do that? Like what, you know, in a sense, how can states be more effective in the allocation of education resources? First of all, there is a, an important aspect that if a country is not committed to the right to education and its policy and its legal framework, then we are missing the, how called, the framework for it. So that's one first uh, aspect. The second is addressing the challenges of the system and particularly keeping an eye on the most disadvantaged. That could be, for example, uh, rural versus urban. That could be gender dimension. That could be uh, uh, minorities. That could be disabled persons. So it's, the context can differ. And the question is, are we taking an equity lens while planning this, the expenditure? Are we taking a different lens, which is... Uh, responding to other lobby or other, uh, call it, push from different uh, stakeholders. And what about how can nation states, you know, from UNESCO's point of view, how can nation states begin to think through some of these trade-offs, you know, in, in the example that we've said earlier between the military and education? I mean, I would imagine it must be very hard to convince a nation state to reallocate some of their funding on the military and national defense to something like education. How can nation states start to lobby, in a sense, that internal reallocation that might be needed to properly fund education? I think we need to take it from another perspective. First of all, we need as a global community to be vocal and advocate for the right to education, for the right trade-offs, in particular when it comes to education and use the, the right arguments as well. I think it's very important. Uh, the second is how are we able to mobilize the national stakeholders? Just to give you an example, for example, we work with civil society. And civil society is important to mobilize because they can be vocal, they can mobilize the, the public opinion. And third is about the peer learning and capacity building. It's not necessarily that... Uh, countries are, are not willing to do. Sometimes they are missing the capacities to do the right analysis. And it's about evidence, for example, how, what data exists, how we can use this data to advance th this agenda. And at the end of the day, it's about the political commitment. And our role is to collect the data and show where are we going and make that international support and international pressure, if I can use the term, to put the, the policymakers in their uh, responsibilities and to ask them to be accountable and responsible for their decision uh, in front of their public and their citizens first, but also in the international arena as well. Do you think COVID-19 then in that sense could be seen as an opportunity to sort of advocate nation states to, you know, think slightly differently about how they fund education? To be honest, we have seen that countries where there is a political commitment to education we have seen them, for example, acting to reopen schools safely when they can reopen, to close schools at the last moment, because they know that closing schools has impact on the quality of uh, learning, the equity, but also it has other uh, impact on the well-being, on nutrition, on health. So I, I think uh, it's, first of all, a political commitment that has to be clearly taken at a country level. But our role at international uh, the international level is to say education has been impacted. For example, we uh, we are uh, publishing a report with the, with the World Bank and UNICEF on the, the learning losses. 
and we know that uh, the learning losses are real, but they are unequal. And it's very important that we raise the flag that uh, this will require investment in terms of uh, uh, infrastructure, but in terms of teacher training, in terms of uh, program for the well-being, in terms of educational resources, investing in the resilience of the education system. We are not at the end of the crisis. And when you see the data, you see that the COVID is continuing. We have uh, still a million of learners who are out of school. And we know that more than uh, half of the uh, 1.6 billion learners didn't have access to online learning because they didn't have access to internet or they didn't have access to devices. So during that crisis, in that ongoing crisis in many ways, you said that in the short term, nation states need to think about certain stimulus money to sort of, you know, shock the system and actually invest a huge amount of money up front to sort of help overcome this crisis. How can low and middle income countries sort of pay for a stimulus, right? I mean, is, are, is it about taking out more debt to be able to fund social sectors like education? Is that sort of the idea here? Yeah, well, it's a, an important question and quite sensitive. Of course, the more uh, economies are indebted, of course, the more they will have difficulties to get loans and the higher is the cost of loans. But I think the, the message that there is a, it's a once in a generation investment that will be done now. One is when there is resources allocated to recovery, that education is at the center of that because it is about investing in the future. The second is that wherever budget was allocated to education, it has to be protected so that it doesn't harm the, a situation which was already not very good and we had a crisis before the crisis in reality. And the third is what innovative financing we can consider at the country and at the global level. Let me give examples. We have seen communities mobilizing resources to invest in education. We have seen foundations. We have seen private sector as well in, in some countries. So that multi-stakeholders mobilization for education is an important action to be taken. The second is most economies are taking debts now to invest in the stimulus in the recovery. It will be a bit strange that we, we are saying for some economies, yes, it's open bar, take money and, and invest in recovery. And for others, we are telling them, no, no, your debt uh, is high. Stop. You will have to just leave with what you have. I think we have to have a coherent message. But again, I'm not a, a macroeconomist here and I wouldn't make a receipts. But I think we have to have coherent message. And the coherent message that investing in education and health is investing in the future. And that message has to be go and is valid for advanced economies, but also for low-income countries. How does overseas development assistance or aid, you know, bilateral aid fit into this picture, particularly in the short term? You know, the idea of sort of adding stimulus money focused on education. How does ODA fit in? We are updating the, the data on the, the ODA and probably it will be available early next year. So I think we have less data. And let me put it this way, to be positive, we have seen uh, international solidarity. We have seen countries who try to work with uh, and, and support other member states. Uh, ourselves, we launched a global education coalition that uh, uh, has a, a name to leave no one behind and to ensure learning never stops. Uh, we have seen also a large movement with uh, our colleagues at uh, the World Bank, UNICEF and the Education Commission in the bilateral with the European Commission as well. We have seen a lot of mobilization to support uh, particularly low-income countries. The question is, that's a tiny part of the investment in education we know. It's less than uh, 3% 
of the uh, investment in education. So the bulk will have to come from domestic financing. And that means, uh, or to your first question, Will, is there a political commitment? What are the trade-offs and what are the parameters that are used for the trade-offs? And the parameters from our point of view has to be about rights. It has to be about human-centered recovery and it's about the right to education. And we have more than 100 countries that ratified the, the right to education convention. It's binding. They have to respect those commitments. And the right to education comes with a price. It's not for free. It comes with the investment that has to be done. And uh, countries who are not investing in education are not investing in the right to education. But that sort of insight and that argument would be valid before COVID as well. As you said, 46% of countries were underinvesting in their education systems in terms of not meeting that 4 to 6% of GDP. So, you know, and those legal obligations of the right to education, you know, pre-exist COVID as well. And so I guess the question is about how is it going to be any different in 2021 now that COVID has happened? I mean, should we really expect that countries will really begin to increase the funding to education and, and begin to act differently in a sense? Uh, you know, as a skeptic, what evidence do we have to think that they're really going to act differently going forward. You are right. In reality, the COVID amplified the injustice and the challenge that we were facing. So it's not a, a vector of, of uh, relief or, or of improvement. So it is amplifying, it is accelerating in some cases the, the inequities that we have seen in the education system. In most countries, we have seen a mix of technology that has been used, for example, for learning and teaching and learning, radio, TV and, and online. But in many economies and in many countries, access to online learning has been very limited. So uh, we know that this will, will impact education and the quality of education and equity. Now, what is changing? First of all, there are some good indicators, If I, 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 and I would like to be positive in this case. One is that never before have we discussed the issues of fiscality in education context. And we have the Paris Declaration that was adopted by member states. It's an opening to look more seriously about how the fiscal system is functioning in every country and uh, where the resources can be raised from the domestic financing. I think it's very important message from the international community, but also from member states. And we had head of states joining the event. So I think that's one uh, one important indicator. The second important indicator that is that uh, even where there, there are uh, less uh, resources in the stimulus packages, there is an attention to education in the stimulus package. And I think it's an, a positive indicator. Usually the economic recovery will be more for companies, for investment in, in infrastructure. So there is an opportunity. And the question is how we can use those resources in an efficient way, in an equitable way. And the third, uh, I think there is a, a conscious change in, in the perspective related to how we can address the equity and how we can address SDG4 agenda. That is coming from, uh, for example, when we, you meet with ministers and uh, we had our general conference just ending and we met with, uh, with many ministers. We have heard a lot of attention, for example, to teachers and to the quality of, of teachers and how to invest in uh, teacher training and professional uh, development. We have heard a lot of uh, attention to building resilience, including uh, the digital transformation of education. So there is this, or say, awareness about the importance of investing. How then this translates into more resources, I think, is the, again, the national agenda that has to drive. Our role as the international community is to raise the flag, to provide the, the evidence for it, uh, provide the data for it. And it's then a national drive that has to take this forward. 
Yeah, it, it's really it does sound like there's this uh, window that has been opened and there's a big discursive change at the international level about trying to increase domestic financing for education. And that is a really welcomed change in a sense. So hopefully, you know, that translates into changes at the national level going forward. I guess, you know, another big issue when it comes to education financing, particularly in low and middle income countries, is the amount of resources that households spend on education that that, that sort of doesn't get captured in that national accounting level. So, you know, how should we begin to make sense of these high rates of household expenditures on education. Uh, absolutely. And let me uh, nuance a bit here. Uh, you have to look also at the community investment. Let me give an example. In a country like Chad, 60% of the schools are community schools. And community schools are uh, schools that are funded by the community. The teachers are higher than uh, they are uh, taken by the community. So uh, the community, the household are already investing in some part of the, the world, of course, a lot in, in education. The problem comes is with uh, the quality of uh, the learning in some cases because the community uh, uh, schools require more support. They require more attention from government. And we have, we have seen that there is more attention from uh, some ministers toward this, but uh, there is less attention to it when it comes to, uh, for example, regulation because it is a sensitive dimension. Now, there are some countries that are doing well. And let me give an example. For example, a country like Madagascar, which is a, a, a low-income country. There is a, an attention toward cash transfer to the poorest household so that they are supported, for example, for the nutrition, for access to education. We know from Brazil that the condition cash transfer can bring kids to school and can ensure more sustainable financing for education, particularly for the poorest households. So I think... There are policy solutions and policy measures that exist that uh, can work. Uh, again, it's uh, uh, the political uh, will to make them happen and, and to, to drive them toward uh, implementation and outcomes. It's an interesting phenomenon that household costs because it, in a way, it's sort of like a de facto tax, right? It's, it's a tax that sort of happens at the local level for schools that you know, are in your area, even if it's not being done by some nation state. And in a way, it really does show the commitment that families have for education, and they're already spending a huge amount of money. And it's just that issue of, you know, should it be sort of centralized at a bigger level? And I, and I can imagine some countries might have problems administering, um, you know, a tax system like that. And maybe some people wouldn't feel comfortable giving money over to, you know, a tax system because it might never get redistributed back to their local school. So it's a really, you know, it is, as you said, delicate. It really is this delicate phenomenon. I mean, the other one that always comes up is, you know, what are these households spending on in edu for education? And often it is that private tutoring, that shadow education, right? So it's not even going into mainstream schooling. So the, it's a really complex problem, I would imagine. And it's going to have to be sort of addressed in parallel with this focus on domestic financing as well. True. Well, we, I mean, we have developed a tool that we piloted in mm. several countries. We call it National Education Account. And it's a way to capture all the spendings on education, not only the public expenditure, 
it captures also because uh, in some countries uh, education is under uh, different ministries and in some countries some of the expenditure are not captured so including the household so we developed this tool and we piloted it in, in some countries I think the question is how we can collect the right data to uh, map these different expansion, map where the money is going. Is it going in furniture? Is it going in textbooks? Uh, because in some countries, this is uh, an investment that is made by household. And what is, um, I would say, a, p- a paradox, if I can say so, although it has an explanation. In high-income countries, the expenditure on education is taken by the states. I mean, a country like, uh, like a country in France, uh, the textbooks are covered by the states. In the beginning of the academic year, the government gives uh, an allowance to a household to spend in the start of the year. When you go to low-income countries, it's the household that will pay. You don't have a free access to education. So the household will pay for uh, fees. They will pay for textbook. They will pay for transport. And of course, uh, there is an explanation that in high-income countries, the fiscal system, families are already paying through the uh, through fiscality, while in uh, low-income countries, the fiscal system is, is still rather uh, weak and, and, and obviously... Uh, it has a different shape. But it's important to highlight that uh, uh, there is this paradox is that a family in a, in a high-income country will have probably less direct expenditure on education compared to a family in low-income country. It is a very strange paradox in a way. Um, and I guess it, it highlights the reason to focus on developing fiscal states and, and a real emphasis. So in terms of UNESCO's effort to work with nation states to improve fiscal states what's next where you know where are we going uh to try and put forward this effort right we are going into three i would say areas of work the first one is um documenting uh, the promising practices and and uh, what works i mean uh, there are different experiences. We have seen some countries earmarking, for example, tax to education. This is not something that the fiscal expert will recommend, but uh, still, this is something that works in a country like Ghana, in in country like India, uh, in Nigeria. So there are experiences that we would like to shed light on and learn from and bring that knowledge and, and experience to, to member states. Second, through the Paris Declaration, there is a, a commitment toward looking at the fiscal system and, and we'll be working under the global cooperation mechanism to look at how we can advance this dialogue between uh, education, finance, uh, and uh, economic uh, and a whole-of-government approach. And uh, this is the work that we'll be doing. And third, we will be, and we are collecting data and watching how much resources are going to education, both in terms of uh, GDP and public expenditure, but we are, our eyes uh, is open on uh, the stimulus packages we looked at how much resources, we looked at the measures, and now we will be looking at where the resources are located, how they are used, and where is the outcome. It's, uh, as I said, it's, it's an important aspect of the work we are doing. Uh, maybe a last piece of work is that we, this is a collaboration between UNESCO and other organizations. It's part of the interagency collaboration, and we would like to take this uh, collaboration, including with the civil society in, in the event we invited for example, a representative of the civil society who are looking at those aspects, there are networks that are looking at fiscality and fair fiscal systems, looking at fiscality and education. So we would like to continue this dialogue. The expertise is not only with UNESCO. UNESCO will, will convene and, and will mobilize the expertise that is uh, over there. Well, we look forward to seeing what UNESCO and these other agencies and civil society does when it comes to fiscal systems and education. 
Boren Chakron, thank you so much for joining Fresh Head. It really was a pleasure to talk today. Thank you, Will, for the invitation. Have a nice day. Boren Chakron is the Director for Policies and Lifelong Learning Systems at UNESCO. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshheadpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Head are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Head which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Fati Aktas, Obafemi Ongunle, Dion Jiang, Annabella Afroboteng, Anya Lin, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, the Shakdev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.